Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. Having arrived at what may well be the climactic moment in all the Gospels. That conversation in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus turned to his disciples and asked, who do people say that I am? And more importantly, what say you? It's a question every one of us will have to answer. One that Peter came to acknowledge once and for all. Finally, after everything they had heard, everything they had seen, after considering all of the miracles and all the debates... God removed the blinders from their eyes, allowing the apostles to acknowledge, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter acknowledged it, and by way of his proclamation, so too did the disciples. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. But professing believers throughout the ages are still left to wonder, just what exactly does that mean? mean? mean, Those following Jesus in the first century assumed that he would pursue a political agenda, rally an army of militants and overthrow their oppressors with the sword. That's what they wanted, and that's what they expected. And if we fast forward 2,000 years, we find that our wants and expectations are still obscuring the truth today. Uh, We may not see him as a politician or a combatant as they did in ancient Israel, but we are not without our own theories, our own concepts, our own versions of Jesus as the Christ. Most people in modern Christendom follow Jesus like they shop for a new car. They carefully peruse the showroom pick out a model that fits their needs, order the color that reflects their style, add options that make life more convenient, all while trying to pay the cheapest possible price. But as one theologian put it, Jesus is not customizable. He has not left himself open to interpretation, adaptation, innovation, or alteration. He has revealed himself clearly through his word, and we have no right to personalize him. And yet, still, we are molding Jesus into our own image. The danger now, he says, is when we gather in our church buildings to sing, lift our hands in worship, We may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping some lofty version of ourselves. As the true biblical Christ gets further and farther from view, the question may not be as simple as, is Jesus the Christ? But rather, what kind of Christ do you proclaim him to be. 
Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 21. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, the other day I came across some statistics put out by Jim Eliff, a professor at Midwestern Bible Theological Seminary in Kansas City. He was trying to gauge the effectiveness of our evangelistic methodology, particularly as it relates to the altar call invitation and the mass evangelistic event. According to his research, for every 100 professions of faith made in the modern-day church, only 30 people will ever be baptized, only 10 of them will ever show up to worship on a given Sunday, and only four will be part of church life throughout the week. Now that ought to tell us something, friends. And we've gotten so wrapped up in increasing the number of professions we hear, seeing people accept Jesus, whatever that means, we're neglecting to tell people who this is that we want them to follow. And because they remain unaware of his exclusivity, his righteousness, or his demands, the best they can offer is a half-hearted, self-motivated, emotionally charged confession that evidently has a 96% failure rate in producing a true disciple. This is what happens when we push and pull for a decision without properly educating our people. A problem that has become particularly problematic in the areas of youth ministry, but plagues the rest of the church as well. And as much as it grieves me to say this, friends, we are no exception. Oh, we claim to follow Christ, sure, but do we know who this Christ is? Do we know what it means to follow? As we take a closer look at this morning's text, let us consider 
the kind of Christ Jesus promises to be. First, as we see in verse 21, Jesus is a suffering Christ. Immediately after Peter's confession and the discussion here of the church, from that time on, we are told, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, unlike some of their previous interactions, Jesus speaks here just as clearly and convincingly as is possible. He doesn't use parables. didn't pose difficult rhetorical questions. He states the matter plainly. So every one of these apostles would understand. Because what he was about to tell them was not at all what they were expecting. In fact, the notion that the Messiah would suffer and even die? Well, that was totally and completely outside the parameters of what the Jewish faithful believed at this time. Remember, they still thought that their Christos was coming with military strength to slay the evil Romans and set up an earthly kingdom for the Jews. What's this then about suffering and surrender? With all due respect, I want the lion who devours my enemies, not the lamb who is slain by their hand. See what's happening here. Now they're getting a king, but it's not the king they really wanted. And that is exactly the state of the modern Christian movement today because the Jesus that I want and the Jesus who is are oftentimes two entirely different beings but rather than project our own image on Christ or hold him to our very confused expectations we ought to look at what scripture has to say about him. And though Peter and company did not have the benefit of New Testament revelation as we do, they had the law and prophets, same as us, and they should have remembered the words of Isaiah 53, telling them that their Messiah would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he would be like one from whom men hide their face He would be despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself would bear, and our sorrows he would carry. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we will be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. 
Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. The Lord was pleased to crush him. We'll read later on in verse 10. And he poured himself out unto death. As we see in verse 12. The disciples were absolutely right, friends. When they said, Jesus, you are the Christ. But despite the clear teachings of their favorite prophet, they didn't seem to know that their Christ would have to suffer. They didn't realize their Christ would be despised. They missed the fact that he was going to be scourged and they could not understand why he would die. This is not the Savior we wanted. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) But it is the Savior that each of us desperately need. For apart from his suffering, there is no forgiveness. Apart from his death, there is no life. Are you there? This is the Christ that you and I must follow. He is a suffering Christ and he is an unshakable Christ. Now take a look at verse 22. After hearing these things, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me. Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now back in verse 21, Jesus told him that Christ must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must die. Because before the foundations of the world, the Father had determined that to be so. And though it would be very unpleasant for Jesus... He was willing to submit himself entirely to that command. While others questioned it. While others challenged it. While others went so far as to rebuke it, if you can imagine such a thing. After hearing news of Christ's plan, Peter says what a lot of people say today when hearing the truth about Jesus He said, this can't possibly be the only way. No, God forbid it. I forbid it. By my apostolic decree, this shall never, ever happen to you. Because suffering and rejection had no place in Peter's conception of the Messiah. And so he rebuked Jesus and told him, there's no need to suffer. There's no need, Jesus, for you to die. We can devise a much better strategy, Lord. One that avoids all of these unpleasantries and puts you and I both in a position of power. Peter is suggesting that Jesus pursue things in an easier, less painful way. But upon hearing that proposal, Jesus says to him, 
these words. Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter's attempt to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross held in it the same temptation that Satan gave at the outset of Christ's public ministry. You may recall their interaction from Matthew chapter 4 where the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Satan said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And look out for yourself here. You can avoid all of this pain, all of this suffering. You don't have to hang on the cross. You don't have to drink the Father's cup of wrath. You don't have the anguish and the rejection and the shame. You can have this all and you can get it in an easier fashion. Save yourself. Take the shortcut. No one ever has to know. Then Jesus said to him in verse 10, Go, Satan, get away. I will not bow down to another, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The heart of this temptation and the one that Peter offered in this morning's text was the acquisition of a throne without the experience of pain and suffering. And yet Jesus was so completely sold out to his purpose, he was unwilling to endure all of that in order to accomplish the will of his Father. A will that could not be realized any other way. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus said in John chapter 6, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see, Christ understands that as hard as it may be, suffering and death are God's will for him. That's why he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, as we're told by the prophet Isaiah. Because he knows he cannot raise up the saints lest he die and rise again himself. Huh? All throughout his ministry, Jesus has been pressured to conform. Satan pressured him to cut corners. The religious leaders pressured him to fall in line. The disciples pressured him to do it some other way. To save himself, prolong his ministry, fight back against the opposition. If you walk with Christ long enough, you will be pressured to conform in one way or another as well. Will you be as determined as Jesus to stay the course? Saying, Get behind me, voices of Satan, for I have no interest in doing this the easy way, or the more popular way, the more uplifting way, or any way else. No, we're going to do it God's way. And there's just no way around that. Are you there? 
The Jesus we follow is a suffering Christ. He's an unshakable Christ. And as we see in verse 24, he is a costly Christ indeed. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Seems to me that in declaring our passion for lost people, we have distilled the gospel down to the simplest, easiest, least offensive form possible. We strip everything objectionable away from the entire thing. So it becomes the repeat after me prayer, the raise your hand if you want it exercise, or the I've signed the front page of your Bible so now no one can ever question whether or not you are saved. I mean, we even have the ABCs of salvation because, oh, that's just how easy following Christ can be. Of course, the problem with all of that is it's not that easy to follow Christ. Now, being a true disciple of Jesus is more demanding than any of us have even begun to realize. Because as it turns out, the free gift of salvation that we sell to the world as a cheap commodity will cost those who receive it everything that they have. You want to come after Jesus? Forget the rote prayer and the ABCs. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That means that you and I must no longer stand at the center of our own little universe where everything continually revolves around me and my interests. I mean, so many of us put on our church face Sunday morning, but we live the rest of the week as though we are the kings of the world. Denying yourself means those attitudes, those beliefs, those behaviors are gone completely. Because as a follower of Christ, your universe now revolves exclusively around the person of Jesus. And not only that, he says that anyone who wishes to come after him must also pick up and carry their cross. Now, much has been said of this illustration, and we will not go down every possible avenue. But the picture is of a man made to carry his own cross, or at least the horizontal portion of it, all the way through town on the way to the site of his own execution. Because that man is willing to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. So, oh, you don't mean that literally. Sure I do. That's what many of these disciples to whom Jesus was speaking would face in the next 5, 10, 50 years. And I see nothing in Scripture that would suggest a lower standard for those of us today. That doesn't mean that we all will die for the sake of the gospel, but as you sit in your seat this morning, can you say with certainty that you must be willing to? 
It's a far cry from the ABCs. <laughs> Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. When Jesus said this, his expectation was that these disciples, whom he would soon leave behind, would go where Jesus had gone and do what Jesus had done. All the days of their life until they were called home to glory. Because the word to follow there is from the Greek akalotheo, which means to cleave steadfastly to another and accompany them in their pursuit of their goal. So I ask you, by that definition then, are you following Jesus in your life? Don't tell me you raised your hand one day at an event. Never mind all that. Have you clung in desperation to Jesus? Is his purpose your priority every single day? In contrast to the man-centered, feel-good platitudes that pervade contemporary Christendom, John MacArthur once said, the gospel preached by Jesus was a sobering call to self-denial suffering, and absolute surrender. False gospels entice their hearers with promises of material prosperity, physical healing, earthly success, self-esteem, and an easy life. The true gospel deals a death blow to such counterfeits, calling followers to a humble brokenness, a life of self-sacrifice, and a willingness to endure hardship for his sake. This is not a cheap savior that we are after, friends. It's a costly one. Rather than coerce people into making some kind of public profession, why don't we ask them to consider carefully whether or not this Jesus really is for them. This kind of discipleship certainly was not what the twelve thought it was. Nor does it align with most of our modern day presentations. But make no mistake, this is what it means to follow. That you are willing to give up everything that you have. That you're willing to lay down all of your desires. That you're willing to forego that pay increase at work, that more comfortable life, the time with your family even, that obsession with your electronic devices. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if in doing so he forfeits his soul? Are you there? This is what you've got, church. A suffering Christ. An unshakable Christ. A costly Christ. And a just Christ. Take a look back at verse 27. Where Jesus tells them that the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. 
and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, when people gather together for worship on a Sunday morning these days, this is rarely the kind of thing that they consider in regard to Christ. We are much more apt to say, Jesus is all-loving, Jesus is all-forgiving, he's ultra-compassionate, ultra-sensitive, ultra-tolerant. To the point where, as one congregant told me, uh, he knows that I'm only human, that I'm doing the very best that I can. That might be the average churchgoer's conception. But that is not the Christ of Scripture. Not even close. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that God will bring every act to judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. That he will judge through the person of Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. And that he will render to every man according to his or her own deeds. And that reality is stated word for word in Psalm 62, Proverbs 24, Matthew 16, and Romans chapter 2. Where Paul tells man that because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, well, to them he renders eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, to them he will render wrath and indignation. Our cavalier attitudes about Christ and our taking for granted his kindness and mercy. Those things do not absolve us in any way from his judgment. In fact, it's just the opposite. It could be that our stubbornness and unrepentance actually invites more divine retribution upon us. Slowly building up a reservoir of wrath that will burst forth upon our heads at the time of reckoning. Isn't that what we're told here? In what some theologians consider to be the most sobering verse in all of the Bible? That every day we go without repentance, we are depositing future wrath into our judgment account? That should turn every one of us from our sin. Not tomorrow. Or the next day, or the day after that, oh, this should cause us to turn from sin today. Knowing that God judges in accordance with the way that we live right now. For indeed, Christ does repay every man according to his deeds. Whether we read those words in the Psalms of David, the Wisdom of Solomon or the prophecies of Hosea. Whether we see them in the teachings of Jesus, the epistles of Paul, or the book of Revelation, this principle of exact retribution is one that we must come to terms with. 
if we're going to rightly appreciate the person of Christ. He is not all grace with no accountability. I mean, that's how he has been portrayed over the years. Even by some who've stood at this very pulpit. That's the Jesus they wanted, so that's the Jesus they preached. But this isn't Burger King. You can't just have Christ your way. No, you have Christ how he is. Or you don't have Christ at all. Do you see? This is the Christ of the Bible, friends. He's a suffering Christ. An unshakable Christ. A costly Christ. A just Christ. And a right now kind of Christ. Take a look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There has been much debate over the specific reference that is being made here. When he talks about the Son of Man and his kingdom, it's referring to the transfiguration, which is only a short time away. Is he talking about his resurrection? When all of his power will be put on display for the world. Is he talking about the destruction of the temple, which would occur some 40 years still into their future? We can discuss that issue offline if it is of particular interest to you, but I'm not sure the event itself was Jesus' point. See, he's speaking to a group of Jews who've been looking for the Messiah for countless generations. They have been 400 years without a prophet. They're wondering, are you really the expected one? Or do we have a while to wait yet until that one comes? And to that group, Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is happening. And it's happening now. Whether you like it or not, the time to get on board with the cause of Christ is not tomorrow. It's not the next day. It's not five years down the road. The time for Jesus is right here and right now. It's not some far off thing like the Israelites believed it to be. It's not just in the distant future as we would want to believe. We're talking about eternity here, friends, which by very definition begins in this moment. And then it continues in every moment hereafter. It's time, friends, it's time. There's no more reason to wait. And there's no more reason to waffle. This is who Jesus is. He's a suffering Christ. 
an unshakable Christ, a costly Christ, a just Christ, and a right now Christ. And if you follow that Christ, the true biblical historical Jesus, then his sacrifice is credited to you. See, as much as we think that we're going to lose all this stuff in pursuit of our Savior, well, friends, all that is nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, the one for whom I am willing to lose all things and consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Friends, I promise you, following Jesus is worth it. Every challenge, every heartache, every persecution, I promise you, it's worth it. But you can't take my word for a thing like this. No, a thing like this can only be revealed to you by God himself. And so as we pray, let us examine our hearts and our lives that we would come to appreciate the Christ and commit once again to follow him. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we have crafted you oftentimes in our own image and we repent of such a thing. Lord, you are who you are. You are who scripture says you are. You are exactly the God that we need you to be. Help remove the blinders from our eyes that we might see you. Just exactly as you are. Lord, that we might see your son not trying to be those things that we hope or put our expectations on him and certainly not to distill him down to the lowest common denominator as we seem to have done in modern Christendom. Lord, may those things never be. I just want to see the truth because I know the truth will set us free. Free from lies, free from deceit, free from error free from the trappings of this world. We just want to see the truth, Lord. But we know that you have to reveal it to us. So I pray that that work would be happening right now. Right now in the hearts of those sitting here. The hearts of others who will hear this later, Lord, that you would be working and affecting their innermost portions. That we might see you. And seeing you, that we might then follow you all the days of our life for our good and for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would continue to move through this time of communion and fellowship. Lord, that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be moved, that our lives would be changed as a result of who you are. Thank you for this time. Continue to bless it now, we pray. Amen and amen.
Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.